after day I was So don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me. Don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me. You know you got my sympathy, but don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me. Don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me. Don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me. You know you got my sympathy, but don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me. God damn it. Ah, So yeah, it just occurred to me, Overwatch, is that still around? Because for a while, it was going to be, not only was it an incredibly popular video game, it was going to become the next great American spectator sport. Like, there was an Overwatch League that had a championship that was in the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, I believe. There was real money behind it. Like, the project had a significant capital investment. And then it just seems like it completely fell off. I mean, obviously, the uh, spectator component was marred by COVID, but I don't know. It feels like video games are so hegemonic as a entertainment genre, I guess you'd call it. I don't even know. Like, uh, form... Like a form of entertainment, like technological form of entertainment. They're maybe the most utilized, but have yet to really create an independent, um, like cultural identity. Gamers still don't think of. They cannot uh, get it across to themselves or anybody else that video games are an art form. They really want it, but they uh, they want it to be recognized, but they can't rec- they can't deal with the contradictions that that requires. Like Gamergate was basically the larger culture of uh, of like mainstream entertainment 
saying, okay, gamers, you guys want to be part of uh, the big boy squad? You guys want to be part of, like, a, the general hegemonic, you know, uh, legitimate forms of entertainment? Things that you aren't a loser for doing? Things that you don't feel defensive about uh, indulging in? You want uh, cultural kudos for engaging in them the way people do for watching movies or reading books or uh, listening to podcasts or streaming TV shows or writing and talking about those things? You can be like that, but you have to be housebroken. Like, this new uh, cultural milieu is a liberalized space. This is a, it truly is a feminized space in that it is uh, housebreaking away a lot of the features of male, like, um, clannishness, all being absolved by, like, the market, which, remember, these are all about, this is all about hegemonic uh, uh, economies. Were video games going to turn into, from a toy, to a component of culture? Were they going to make that transition? They had to do it, though, on the terms of, at this point, progressive capital, socially progressive capital, which has a vested interest in having as wide a uh, demographic appeal as possible, defined by having a pitch for everyone, because everyone is a potential consumer. And that overriding logic is going to push, regardless of what the, in, the beliefs are of people uh, within entertainment, it's going to push things in a, a socially progressive direction in terms of uh, undermining the ideas of white, white supremacy, gender hierarchy, all this stuff. Like, this, these things are resistance to fully marketized social relations. Like, they are, but, but they're reactionary. So games were going to get on the, well, on the playing field with everybody else. They had to have a logic of culture that allowed them to do things like sell nihilistic murder games to alienated young men, but do it in a way where the stories that were being told in those nihilistic adventures <clears throat> are socially progressive. And even if <clears throat> the actual product doesn't do that, as long as you have a, uh, a commentariat who can critique these pieces of art, right, in a way that says, this isn't what could be, and therefore gives everybody license to keep indulging in it. The reptile brain snapped back and said, no, no, that's too great a cost. We will create our own alternative hegemony. And then that linked to the greater project of the, the right in general. It's just one element of the reactionary rejection of the neoliberal noose being applied after 2008. And so Gamergate is this uh, rejection of that which had previously been the object of pursuit. And now a new 
counter-hegemonic cultural identity has to be built. And that becomes the entire uh, online right. Which explodes out of the same dynamic that creates the online left at about the same time. And the thing that these two forces have in common is that they are sterilized politically. Because they are totally detached from material politics and attached, fatally attached, to the spectacle of the bipartisan uh, political battle of the two-party system, of, of the structure of America's deliberative uh, processes, not to the sinews of its uh, economy, which are what actually are determining the, uh, the, the rate of decline. Audio is clipping. I guess I should turn down the volume. At least it's connected. I like that this thing is actually connected to something. So everybody who is involved in this online right and left efflorescence after 2000, I'd say 2016, it really is the, the Trump election. is uh, The Sanders campaign and then Trump winning are really what... Because those are the contradictions emerging from the system. And, and, and the politically active, neurotic, downwardly mobily educated, who are all the people engaging in online politics, uh, give it their energy during that period of, of anxiety, decline, possibility, that made people reassess their understanding of their social contract. But these people are, what, ha what they have in common is, is that they are disaggregated in any class sense. They are downwardly mobile, yes. They are college-educated, yes. But beyond that, their jobs, their incomes, their relationships to capital float independently, independently of each other because the politics that they engage in does not engage those levels of identity. It's fixed at the level of partisan identity enforced by their parents, the parents of this new generation of politically active, downwardly mobile, college-educated people. Their parents, because they are still homeowners, largely, beneficiaries of the last social contract forged in the Reagan era, are committed to the project of capitalism because they see themselves as beneficiaries of it. So their politics is just this, uh, this dance of, of uh, denunciation of the self as they externalize everything that's wrong with a system that they know that they're part of, uh, but which they still benefit from. They need someone to blame for uh, the fact that their kids look like they're not going to have as good a life, that like, the promise of upward mobility that they had assumed would like carry on through the generations was already being reduced to their uh, in front of them but the, all they can do is vote because that's all they know to do because these people have been homeowners much more deeply 
become homeowners much more deeply as like a motivator of self-identity that orders our understanding of the world than worker would be. And so the non-homeowning educated are this tail in the, uh, in the aftermath of a battle between these two wings of, of the, uh, these two culturally polarized wings of the post-war middle class, the homeowners. Because they are the center of gravity of politics, they vote more, more of them vote, their, their concentrated identity imprints more on political outcomes. That means that their commitment to the electoral system, which is all we have in politics now, there is no, we've been depoliticized, all we have is the skeleton of social, uh, of social ritual that connects us to any kind of democratic tradition. They still believe in it because it has done enough for them to make them believe in it. Their kids don't believe in it because they've never seen it work. But they can't articulate an independent politics because all they can do is vote too. Because they don't have a connection to their co-workers. Their, their, uh, they don't have a socially reproduced identity that correlates to a greater self-interest that connects people by degree of exploitation by capitalism or, or, uh, or position in the uh, chain of production. And so our politics is hostage to this, and this is why our president becomes more and more powerful in our minds as he becomes more and more drained of any meaningful power in his actual job. Now, none of these are moral positions. This is an important thing to, to underline because this is where a lot of people get confused because you start thinking, well, who are the good and the bad guys here? It's not about that. Socialism doesn't happen because people get better. Socialism happens because people change their self-perception to align their self-interest with a greater interest. That's class consciousness. It is a self-interested movement. It's directed towards protecting oneself from, uh, from the pain and misery of life. It is an adaptive and, and uh, evolutionary move. And you can say that's getting better, but not in a moral sense. It, it, it is an objective uh, process. It is people being put in a position of friction where they either have to fight or cooperate. And, and, and they get in a situation where more of them come to the conclusion that cooperate makes sense than fight. And then that builds 
new incentive structures uh, that redefine what people are capable of, what really is a possibility in the world. It's, a, it's a, like a real rupture is, is what, what, it's, what's important to remember. And so we're all in this thing. We are all subjects. We are all consumers. We're all grappling with that identity. We're trying to understand our, our, our relationship to it and to mold it, to try to mold the world through this understanding of ourselves. Uh, and that is the task of everybody who is in this position of like trapped consciousness, is to work themselves through the, the task of like daily life and I guess, find answers to the question of how how to live with this reality. And that means disassociating your participation in politics, as you understand it, with uh, that effort to build build a, a greater sense of self, like to, to do the, like the necessary uh, internal transformation that is required of the moment. Yeah. It's all just the circle over again. It's all, I'm sorry. I don't, I honestly don't know. I don't know what I'm going to end up doing. I feel like I'm in a kind of a purgatory situation. Yeah, I guess that's the thing to remember is that if I if I'm in purgatory, so are the rest of us. So I don't have to uh, worry about being disconnected. So one thing I'm doing is that I think I can share responsibly is that I'm dipping my toe into just helping out with uh, local politics here in L.A. Like uh, Josh Androsky has a whole like plan to uh, take over the uh, L.A. City Council, and I want to be part of it. So 
That's one thing I'm doing. But that's not this. It's something else. Yeah, Kim Stanley Robinson is much more optimistic than younger people. And I think that's because that chronological relationship to decay, you know, like you, if you've seen the, the system functioning to, for something other than mere profit, if you've ever seen that and lived through it, I think it gives you a certain faith in the viability of institutions to uh, conform to human desires, you know, through uh, conventional politics. But the thing is, I don't think that that means that that's wrong even. I think the assumption that, oh, now we're right, we see things clearer, isn't necessarily true. Because there's every incentive, if you've only seen bad things happen, to make an opposite wrong assumption that only bad things can happen. That there's some sort of, like, uh, that there's no possibility in any action for anything good to happen. And that's not true. But that's the conclusion you sort of subconsciously reach living through the 21st century. Is I've never been wrong to assume the worst. But that's not logic. That is a motivated reasoning around your trauma. Just as the older generation adheres to uh, faith in systems that have benefited them and that they can understand that they can feel like the, they can feel the uh, the ghost of democracy still sort of humming in them and that doesn't mean anybody is right or wrong it means that from one position or another of faith in systems you still have to fucking do something you are still required to make a leap forward and if everyone is making that leap and they're moving in the same direction because they're fucking paying attention to one another, they're communicating with one another, they're operating out of a shared project, they're not just trying to impose their own conceptual schemas onto the world and telling people that they have to take them or leave them. Is that then you'll have people grabbing hands across the abyss of ignorance that exists on both sides and that warp our understanding of the moment no matter where we are. There's nothing that makes anything clearer. The trauma and fear make you want to just end it. Make you want to just drive into pure nar narcissistic self-indulgence because you figure it'll be over soon. Well, that isn't a rational conclusion. That is a deeply indulgent conclusion. That is you trying to find an excuse to just take the spiritual uh, whipped cream and just put it down your gullet. And so that's why there is this, uh, I think, this siren call towards nihilism that says, oh, if it's... If I have to live with a, a slow, steady decline for the rest of my life and 
things just keep getting slightly worse all the time. But my absolute position within capitalism is basically the same. Like, I don't ter- fall off the, 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 the map. Some people do, but not me. You know what I mean? Like, the collective subject of uh, our, uh, like, our consumer point of view that we see reflected in culture. That, like, we identify with our, you know, perspective. That perspective is, is always going to be there. And, you're, and so you're imagining yourself not having fallen off, but having survived. Because to fall off is to be annihilated, and that's the end of all suffering. The scary option is that you're always you as things get worse. And by the end of it, you're, you're someone who you now recognize would be a monster. And you don't want that to happen, but you don't have the strength to prevent it. So you want something to intercede. You want some sudden intercession that stops the slide while you still feel like you have humanity. Like you can look back on yourself as a human being. And that is the death drive. And that drives all the nihilistic politics that we currently uh, face. And that's the least of it is like left nihilism. Most of that's fake nihilism anyway. Like, like both political parties, the Democrats and Republicans, represent... Uh, dueling death dreams of the uh, of the panicked homeowning middle class of America as they spiral into oblivion and can't rec- reckon with it. And they're going to destroy each other. They're going to go down Rickettbach Falls like Moriarty and Holmes. That's all, that is not, that is, that is, things will get bad for me personally in such a way that I'll keel over relatively young. And uh, globally, something's, I can always imagine something's going to come in and just snap the reins on me. Like, I'm not going to have to keep abiding by my position in this system as a sort of a passive consumer atop this machinery. I'm going to have to like face, face that. And I'm going to have the strength to make the right call. And I don't know if a lot of people have a lot of faith that they do. I know I don't. And so there's this uh, hope that something will just erupt. That there will be some sudden, and I think that's, I mean, of course, I'm just seeing that everywhere because that's my personal frame of reference, but, like, my relationship to, like, my hypochondria really feels like just a nested connection to my relationship towards, like, the apocalypse and, like, the, the terminal decline of the system. It's like these things are sort of linked. Like, they, they both, like, the... Uh, Recognition of both of them gives me permission to uh, to uh, be be self-destructive. I think peace comes with a resolution of those sense of uh, those senses of like narcissistic attachment to a project. I think that's how you detach yourself from that cycle. So that, uh, so that what you really are experiencing 
in your life and, and, and everywhere is not filtered through this like hysterical lens because the consequences are not so terrifying. The thought of like dying, the thought of your understanding of yourself and your relationship to the world ending is not uh, the thing that sort of chases the edge of your vision and drives you towards distraction. But yeah, we have a social hypochondria. We're looking for the cancer. And, the, and, it's, and it, because it's a middle-class movement, it's Democrats and Republicans, that cancer is either white supremacy and its demographic excretions or, uh, or the, uh, the other, the non-white other. Of course, that's easy for me to say. I have that, so well, of course, this is uh, you know getting a lot of boss baby vibes from this. But I really do think, at the end of the day, that's what we're all doing. We're all just picking out our our map of the world that we have shaped from our own shadow, and then try to fit it into like a jigsaw with everybody else's, and then. Uh, Technology should be, ideally, utilized to facilitate that, uh, that search of a lot for alignment. And that's the capacity that we have, and it's insanely frustrating and, and horrifying to see it fail to be utilized as such, but which is currently in the hands of this algorithm that is uh, antithetical to the short-term survival of the human race. Not, and when I say that, I don't mean like they're all going to die, just like what we think of as a human being is going to die, and it's going to be replaced by something worse until it isn't there anymore, recognizably. And at every point of crisis and, and declension and, and, uh, and seismic shift downward uh, in expectations of, of life experience, people are always going to be shaped in their reactions to that by the social forces that surround them. Yeah, I absolutely understand now in a way that I never thought I would. The, uh, the post-60s turn inward on the left. Because it is like the rational response to defeat. 
Like people, like the, the hippies had to deal with the fact that they all sold out, right? And that's why their kids were all phobic of selling out, because they saw what it had done to their parents. Just hollowed them out. But the fact is, is that in the absence of any real social movement, in the failure for the counter-hegemonic forces, cultural and material, to cohere around any kind of meaningful uh, resistance to capitalism as it is imposing itself on the, uh, in the 1970s, the failure for that to come together meant that the choice was to either sell out or bat your head against the wall uh, in a romantic self-annihilation. Now, some people did that, but the thing is, most people over time aren't going to do that. Most people, battered and, and, and uh, twisted by their material relationship, uh, by their life experience, by their intersection with culture, and hegemony, hegemony rather, they will take the deal. And one way of coping with that deal is to say, okay, well, if we all can't get out of there, if we all can't change this, if we're all stuck in this thing, how will we live with it? How will we cope with it? And if you can't change anything else, you can only then change yourself. It is, it's, it's the final realization when uh, hegemony has been uh, imposed. Yeah, if people want to understand what neoliberalism is, Neoliberalism is just hegemonic uh, global capitalism. Let's say that. Because throughout the 20th century, you can identify what, uh, global, like Western capitalism, specifically Anglo-American capitalism after World War II, as currents of hegemony in a global system, but as part of a system of hegemonies, rising and falling. One of them being the Soviets, the, the third worldists, or I mean the, uh, I'm sorry, the non-aligned movement, developmentalists, all this stuff. Like, it's all part of this relatively heterodox response. Is the entire world is structured into the world system of capitalism and has to adapt to that. They're all creating different localized hegemonies. And they fight each other out. And that's the 20th century. Until 1989, when... Uh, Capitalism becomes fully hegemonic. And I would say that the crisis of the 70s is when global capitalism, it distinct from like all the currents that made it up when it came out of the New Deal uh, coalition politically, uh, achieves total hegemo uh, 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 hegemony over the working class, which had been part of the Democratic Party, like a significant... Uh, power arrangement within the democratic coalition that had independent authority, that it asserted culturally and politically. That existed from the 30s until the late 60s. 
It breaks up in the wildcat strikes of the 70s, and then you see American domestically neoliberalism emerging, which is hegemonic uh, global capitalism, which has liquefied now the political machine in a way that it hadn't before. And then once, 10 years later, the, uh, the bomb, the, so you get the Volcker shock and then the fall of the Soviet Union as, a, as like the echoing cascade of that decision within a, within a, year, within a decade and then even an exterior, global hegemony doesn't exist. There is only neoliberalism. It's just imagine all of the institutions that used to exist to channel uh, uh, political economy away from profit maximization. All the things that used to exist to to bureaucratically enforce a redistribution of uh, profit away from private hands and back into pub, uh, uh, a uh, public, like a, 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 uh, a citizenhood, a citizenship, a group of, a, a polity. Like some redistribution of profits that have been extracted uh, in the economic sphere, compelled in the economic sphere, because it's a perfect machine for extorting surplus uh, labor. It extorts surplus labor with machine-like uh, grace. It, there used to be institutions, the, the kinds of things that emerge out of the, uh, the, the double uh, um, uh, Pollyanna's uh, notion of social formations that come out of uh, dis disruptions of capitalism. There's these uh, cultural structures, political, economic, redistributive structures that emerge out of the, uh, the New Deal uh, and then the, post the Keynesian state after World War II that, uh, that facilitated a degree of social cohesion that are now dead letters that no longer rail. And that's the difference. The impulse was always there. Capitalism was always there in the background doing this. But its, uh, its profit imperative had been disrupted by this social imposition in the form of our political institutions, which had a degree of legitimacy uh, and actual decision-making apparatus of power and coordination of uh, action that essentially harnessed capitalism. But those institutions burned out in the, in the big uh, social disruption of the 60s, which is the inevitable byproduct of such a rapid uh, reorientation of uh, human experience. Like you're creating an entirely new type of human being from scratch. You're creating a, a mediated consumer subject. where their relationship to uh, the actual position they have within capitalism is fully obscured. 
by all of the uh, social technology and infrastructure that we rely on to make sense of the world and to navigate it and to assign value to things in the first place. And that's why anything that has to that will emerge to challenge this this uh, this self-destructing machinery that is programmed now to annihilate its own social foundations that cannot be stopped from within. Uh, its only opposition can come from new uh, formations, counter-hegemonic forces emerging from local struggle. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I'm rooting for Xi. Apparently, they're going to let that giant uh, real estate conglomerate just go bankrupt. They're not going to rescue it. I thought they might nationalize it, but maybe there isn't an, there anything there to nationalize. Like it might all just be like speculative paper, so there really isn't anything for them to to seize control of, and so they're just going to let it evaporate. And if they do, ooh, if they do that, that's baller. Yeah, of course. NPR was trying to manufacture consent for not letting it fail. No shit. Of course they were. If I wanted to uh, ever sketch out my like most fantastic vision of, of, of like human salvation, like my most indulgent notion of of how uh, how we as a as a species could like get our shit together, you know, like get on the same page. Uh, it would be the newly energized and desperate working classes of, of the, the downwardly mobile uh, people of uh, all identity persuasions in America uh, working through their uh, local conditions as tenants but and workers uh, 
and eventually, like, an idea of citizenship that, bo- that comes out of that struggle uh, could then reach across the water to the, to the straining uh, working class of uh, China and then grasp that, and then, and then the, the pink tide of, of, uh, of self-conscious working-class politics uh, and mass politics in Latin America, they reach across, and then in the Pacific Ocean, where the garbage patch once was, there's a, a, a new transnational, uh, globalized uh, techno-proletariat is able to uh, engage with, all of the crises of uh, terminal capitalism from a position of, uh, of maximized human leverage against the algorithm and be able to just pry that tick-like, uh, a parasitic mass of, uh, of, of real power holders. Because... We do live under a reign of techno-fascism, right? Where the, fa- the fascism is invisible. It's not social the way that fascism was originally and why it's not a good u- word to use, really. Because it's all invisible. It's all technologicalized. But it's not. The technology is partially uh, material. You know, you're cons- the, the, the panopticon and, and the techno-surveillance and the drone army and, and uh, AI and all that shit. But a lot of it is the, technolo- the social technology of coercion and consent that get us to just do what they, they tell us to do every day. And that can change. That is moldable. That's controllable. If people are able to coordinate activity using the technology that they do have access to and then make up for their lack of funds with their demographic advantage. Who knows? Who can ever know? No man can know the hour of the day. Knowing isn't the point. Believing is the point. I don't know, maybe the supply chain is going to snap and all the treats are going to run out and everything's going to change tomorrow. Who fucking knows? And it's 1917 all over again. That can be the thing you imagine happening to stave off anxiety.
It'll be interesting to see how the Brits respond to the return of austerity, because you can see in the British psyche, since World War II, the trauma. So the U.S., our ruling elite, and then the, the middle-class voters who make up like the, the, the nerve stem of our mass politics such that it exists in the form of, you know, the, the collected consumer preferences of American voters. It was all forged by World War II. But for World War II for Americans was collectively remembered as this pretty unalloyed triumph. Relatively few Americans died. No, no damage really was done to the United States at all. In fact, its industri- industry was allowed to boost and over time and create this mass, uh, mass, this unprecedented mass prosperity that had never existed in America before. And then everybody came home and got a house, and it was great. In uh, the UK, they got bombed. The country got the shit bombed out of it. There was a risk. They all thought they were going to get invaded the whole time. They kept having to go into the subway, wait for the bombs to drop. And then their economy was deeply shocked in the 50s in a way that the U.S. wasn't. Uh, And so you had this prolongation of wartime rationing because they had less of an economic base at that point than the U.S. did because it had been fucking blown up and they were net importers by that point anyway, whereas the U.S. was a fucking uh, surplus producer by that point. And so I think that creates these dueling uh, memories of World War II and dueling like associations with that high point in American... uh, uh, Virtue, basically, like the definition of when America was at its peak was this rising to the challenge, this national project, the last time we could really think of a unified America. And that's what these guys have in their heads. For the British, there is a degree of uh, sadism, of, of, of masochism buried into this thing, where, where, where suffering is like yearned for as like a mark of virtue. Americans don't really have that. They talk a big game about being tough, but at the end of the day, they do not value any idea of austerity. None of them. Even the most, uh, even MAGA people, like, none of them are in favor of austerity. Americans are, like, let the party kegs roll. We, we have no reason to ever suffer. Like, oh, we had to build a fucking, you know, there was some mild rationing and you had to, like, build a garden. But then afterwards you get to buy a fucking Packard the size of a tank. Whereas some British guy is like tooling around in a thing made of press board, dying of black lung after his fucking, uh, after he was like inhaling smoke, clearing out a bombed, uh, a bombed 12th century cathedral. And so like Brexit has always had this, part of that appeal I think, has been this sort of wistful return of the idea of a fortress uh, where common common struggle and common pain bring with it social cohesion. But 
we're a different people now. And that, that's, what that's what that politics fails to recognize. And that's what right populism will always fail to recognize, is that what you're trying to reinforce is a, a reactionary social vision linked uh, to the, just the dying uh, in, uh, memories of a precarious, uh, petty, bourgeois-affiliated class. So all they can think to do is strike out at the things that they think are preventing this uh, this return. It's like all people can think, can think to do in the U.S. is is not get the vaccine. We're all in the tailwind of these two these two faces of of smallholder American uh, identity. The people who thought the 60s were groovy and the people who thought the 60s were a drag. Retroactively, of course, nothing, nothing to do with how they thought at the time. It has to be how they remember it culturally. So that's why the British are the sickest people in the entire world. We are so sick, but they are an extra level because they've, they have been, uh, I mean, that's, that's where the fucking pathogen spread. Like that's where, that's where the, the AIDS monkey got eaten was England. Like that's where capitalism emerges. It's a very specific time and place. It's a historical contingency. It's a response to, uh, Conditions of conflict and uh, over resources in uh, in in early modern Europe. Yeah, the way to the way to detach from that is to say it doesn't matter. The '60s were not good or bad; they were. The '60s were, given the conditions of the time, the, the array of forces, the overlay of a, of a, of a, of a uh, interdicting geographic uh, and media structuring of reality on top of America's class relationship building suburbs and ghettos and creating mass media and, and, and institutions of like mass awareness like uh, like the uh, the news like journalism like the very like that going from paper to uh, visual to 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 creating this 
this simulacrum of America that you could interact with for a good portion of your day. I mean, that changes people's relationship to their reality. And all this is filtered on top of uh, the basic, real class relationships. But they're not felt through all of these uh, baffles. And so when you get to the crisis uh, point of the late 60s, all the forces are arrayed orthogonally to class. They're arrayed along moral lines and bourgeois self-conceptions. Uh, among whites, of course. Uh, there's a actual, like, a black liberation movement that is internally coherent and has driven by connection to a working class movement in a way that isn't true of the new left more broadly. But all of them failed to cohere. The traditional working, uh, the traditional labor movement, the, 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 the black radical tradition, uh, and the new left failed to cohere because they were fundamentally different people. Like, I mean, they, they were not workers. They were not people within a position related to capitalism. They were homeowners. They were people with a relationship to ideas of race and gender and uh, nationality. They were those things before they were ever workers, no matter what they actually did, whatever line, part of the line they were on this. And so that defined their relationship to politics, to challenging for power in the moment. And a big part of that is because in the immediate aftermath of World War II, the left was checked everywhere. And this is a victory, a, a signal victory in the long-term struggle of global capitalism to overcome all counter-hegemonic challenges. And post-World War II, as you, you could say as a continuation of World War II, the, the establishment of the armistice, basically, between the left uh, and the global capitalist uh, order was one that would lead inevitably to the defeat of the left more broadly. But no one knew that at the time because their self-interest within the systems they inhabited overrode any broader awareness of the moment because things had failed to cohere. And I would say that the X factor that made them fail to cohere is America's uh, frontier. The ability for, for Europe to find uh, an escape valve to resolve the contradictions that emerge socially from the emergence of capitalism in Europe and, and find synthetic out, uh, a, a synthetic application of those principles uh, on the easily contested land of North America. Because it was in America where the left was uh, was neutered out of the, out of the uh, anti-fascist coalition. There was a popular front between the left all the way to the Communist Party of Russia, 
through to uh, New Deal Democrats who were not communists, people who were communists maybe in some, who thought of themselves maybe as like Marxists, but did not, fellow travelers they were called, all the way to conventional Democrats. We're all on the same page. And then as soon as those shared uh, interests began to diverge, uh, crisis decision points emerged, and there was not a coordinated enough, effective global left to compete for them. And I think that's a historically contingent event because it depends on other things happening the way they do. Like, does that happen if uh, the Reconstruction occurs differently? Do we have the weight of the United States tipping so decisively towards the reaction if its institutions are shaped differently following the crisis of the Civil War? If the constitutional order is challenged from a democratic, uh, a grassroots democratic uh, political machinery, which could contest for power more easily because capitalism at this point is very nascent in its social structure. It is an imperative, but it is imperative that is enforced by social cohesion that is non-capitalist and is subject to uh, to uh, a, a resistance emerging. And I think there's, there are not just like one or another worlds, there's gradients all throughout, because all these are, are just, every outcome is, is in the middle of a range of possibilities. And that means all the other possibilities are, resent, are represented in reality somewhere, and could have been real, and are real, theoretically. Oh, and when I was listing all the things that were uh, militating against the emergence of, of effective working class uh, political expression in the 60s, uh, it's not just, oh, they got treats and they got uh, TV and all that. There is also the emergence of the national security state to emerge as a extra democratic technological uh, weapon to uh, carry out the, like, the directly imperative demands of capitalism, the stuff that could not be allowed to go up for a debate, could not, could not allow the humoring mechanisms and rituals of democracy to uh, intrude. This is the shit where... I was saying, there's coercion and then there's consent. And things like elections and, and uh, legislation and degrees of social uh, safety net expense and social welfare and bureaucracy and, and regulation, all these things
they're all uh, there to the extent that they can afford to be indulged. Because it doesn't really matter. This is basically haggling with the people. What will you put up with? Okay, fine. But some demands are off the table. And they have to be in, that has to be enforced not by the marketplace of ideas or by the political mechanisms being allowed to go unchecked, uh, but by a, strid, a, a strict, rigid enforcement of boundaries in all legal and extra-legal forms from a position that is removed from democratic accountability. That's the important thing to emphasize, is that the national security state created uh, by the Truman administration and then solidified by Eisenhower, uh, is effectively unaccountable to, gov- uh, to democratic institutions of any kind, democratic oversight of any kind. That means that they operate a government that is independent of democratic will. So whose will is it carrying out? The United States of America? That is, to these people, the collective uh, self-interest of a system of systems, a system of distribution of resources, a system of distribution of power, geographically. That thing has interests that are discernible. And they can then be imposed to the degree that they need to be. Now, how far that goes, I don't know. It is a factor, though. It's one of those things that we had to contend with. All I know is uh, we got we got what we want we got the blessing or is it a curse? May you live in interesting times. It's all shits in the air, man. Feel like I'm riding a time quake. I feel like I'm in like the uh, the pre-shock. See, somebody says, how come a whole... This is a perfect example of how difficult this is to talk about and get anywhere. How come holding, owning a house is bad? Why is this a question? What does this have to do with anything? These are individual moral questions. You can, get, you can put your head up your ass for a decade trying to justify, well, am I in this specific condition justified in exercising the capitalist framework of home purchasing? That's up, that is between you and God. Talking about home ownership is, in this way is meant to ex- understand why, why, cap, uh, why politics unfolds the way it does, what the interests are that dominate politically. And interests are self interests. 
It's just the difference between political subjects is the dif- is, comes down to what their definition of self-interest is. So good and bad doesn't enter into it. You will find a justification for owning a house if you really want one. No matter how left you are, if the conditions obtain, you will make the decision that it's good to do. And with all of these things, if there's a condition where it's good to do it, and even abstractly, then it's good to do it. And stop fucking freaking out about it, because it's all bourgeois uh, morality policing. It's... It's the ritual self-abnegation at the Puritan heart of, of uh, liberal sanctimony, which is an ally occasionally in a broader left project and is a necessary component of it, unfortunately, but should not be allowed to just dominate every thought you have in your head. Now, the politics that people pursue because of that self-interested as a homeowner are bad. They're bad politics. Because the agenda is at the expense of others. It's, it's, it's using the state to provide a free subsidy for one way of life at the, at the punishment and, uh, and immiseration of people uh, in another area, in another geographic area. Like make, robbing them in order to, do, to, using the state to make up for the shortfall in rising wages by cannibalizing from uh, social outlay to anybody else and, and laundering it through uh, the market in the form of uh, mortgage interest deductions and shit like that. But them choosing that will happen if there isn't a left alternative, if there isn't a, uh, a class-based social formation that can challenge that person for their allegiance. Because that allegiance is up for grabs. People can change their understanding of, of uh, self-interest. It's not immutable. It's just it expresses itself sort of demographically in a bell curve, like everything else. Most people are relatively committed to it, to selfishness, no matter what their politics are. Because it's what we've all been told is the only thing that's real, for Christ's sake. We've spent our entire lives getting only benefit, only, only selfish pleasure, only able to genuinely pursue selfish ends. Not, a, not rewarded in any way for pursuing selfless ends. And hooked into, uh, into a decision matrix that disallows for cooperative action. It, it's, it, it, it socializes you against cooperating. All right. Well, that was all right, I guess.
The wheel in the sky keeps on turning. And I don't know what I'll do tomorrow. Bye-bye.